This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Ahoy, and welcome back to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia, and I am really excited um, because this week I have on Clifford Ismay, or Cliff Ismay, the author of, I actually have right here so I can read the title properly, Understanding J. Bruce Ismay, the true story of the man they called the coward of Titanic. Hello. Hi, Alexia. Pleased to be speaking with you. I'm really glad to have you here. And you know, literally 10 seconds before I, I hit record, we were talking about something that I want to basically get right back into, which was um, attempting to establish an identity for yourself outside of who J. Bruce Ismay was, because for you were mentioning that people are saying, I'm not going to read your book because he's biased. And I think it's really important to understand who you are independently before you know who the author is before you can make a statement as to whether or not your book is biased because if i get to know you and you won't stop talking about ismay and he's the only thing you talk about and you're like he's the greatest man on earth and you're like evangelical about him then of course i could see where people then might be like yeah his book's clearly biased because it's his entire identity but it's really important that people know who you are as a person so that they can understand the reason that you came to write this book apart from being a relative Okay, so I'm going to start that one. This will probably go on for a while. Um, go for it. I'm going to start that one with one of the reasons I decided to write the book in the first mm-hmm. instance. Because quite often when I meet people, what's your name? I'm Cliff. Cliff. Is me. Oh, are you related to the coward of the Titanic? And I would answer by saying, well, first of all, I don't believe there were any cowards aboard the Titanic. Um, but I'm related to J. Bruce's mayor. And, you know, I used to get that so often. I began to look into why do people believe he's the coward of the Titanic? Okay, so when you look back in history, Hollywood has always portrayed him as a coward. Relevant uh, subsequent documentaries have portrayed him as a coward, generally. Many, many books out there portray him as a coward. And most, a lot of the threads on on social media, put him forward as being a a coward. So I thought, okay, well, that's fine. If he was a coward, he was a coward. You know, hands up. Right. Uh, But was he? And I wanted to find out the truth. So I started looking into things, and I found a lot on both the American and British inquiries, which isn't really out there very much. It's, It's there for people to see, but it's not really referred to very much. You have to look um, for it if you want to find it. It's 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 it's, yeah. it's it's available and it's public. It's not it's not hidden, but you won't find it on a bookshelf, for example. You've got to go looking for it. You've got to go looking for it. So I thought, well, perhaps that information could be more readily available to anyone. Um, so then, I, I was working with that originally, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, this is great, but I don't really have enough to write a book. So I contacted a distant relation of mine, um, who is uh, Bruce's mayor's great-grandson. I was telling him, about, telling him about the book. He says, hey, Cliff, do you know I have a wealth of information, um, original letters, 
diary entries, etc., etc., relating to Bruce, the White Star Line, and a little bit about Titanic. Would you like to come up and see them? Well, hell yeah. <laughs> Is there a portal I can step through? Uh... Exactly. <laughs> so w- once I got access to his letters, I started to think, well, you know, all, all this talk story about him being a, a coward, well, I suppose that's in the mind of whoever's telling the story. People will believe what they want to believe. But the more and more I learned, the less and less I thought him of as a coward. And that was the reason I started to write a book. Not to, I've never wanted to push anyone in any direction. I just hope to to show information that hasn't really been available to the public unless they go specifically looking for it and try to to show a more balanced view of Bruce and let people make their own minds up from that. I think that it's, it's really interesting when you look back at sort of historical events in general because I think as we all know there's always hundreds of people involved in in a scenario no matter you know, if they're victims of the scenario or perpetrators of it, there's always, there's more than one person involved, but usually a sort of handful of names kind of always float to the top. And they're usually the big names in any scenario. Like if it's a a robbery, it's usually the people that orchestrated it. Or um, in the case of a disaster, it's the heads of the lines or what have you. And it's really easy to want to create fall people because it's hard to accept in a lot of cases that things are completely outside of our control. It's a lot easier to say, well, it's his fault. Clearly he's right there. Get him. I, I think that in any accident, whatever it is, whatever happens around the world, the first thing people are looking for is someone to blame. Whose mm-hmm. fault was it? Who caused that? Um, and then of course you have uh, Hollywood again, bringing that back into the scene. Um Almost any successful Hollywood movie will have certain narratives to follow. One is a hero, one is a love story, and one is a coward. And I think once someone has fallen into that category, it's hard to get out of it. You're not wrong, and especially sort of at the time. It's not to say that a person's reputation is unimportant today, but I think, you know, in, in that time, your reputation was also your literal life's worth. You don't you lose your reputation re- reputation and keep everything. You would then also in turn be losing everything, your contacts, your business. You know, if your reputation was tarnished, it was extremely difficult to, to get it back and to have that branded on you. In, for such a mon like a, a monumental moment must have been just really difficult for any for anyone that's a lot i i think it must be i mean once you're down there uh, it's it's very difficult to to climb back up mm-hmm. um it's easy to fall into a big hole whether you jump or whether you're pushed. But once you're in that big hole, it's very, very, very difficult to to get back out of it. And I think this was part of the problem that Bruce had. A lot of people say he lived their life of a recluse. I don't, first of all, I don't believe that. I've never believed he lived a life of a recluse. But he did kind of step back from society. And I don't think that's because... He may have been a little bit ashamed. That's, I mean, he was no hero, 
there were some things he did that he could have done better. Um, but I think whatever he said about the Titanic, any time he tried to defend himself, he was always pushed back down into that deep, deep hole. And I think that was part of the reason why he rarely ever spoke about the Titanic, was because he didn't want to find himself back in that deep hole again. It makes sense. I've I've talked to a few people um, in the past on the show about survivors and how all of them must have had PTSD from the experience. And then to continually go through needing to recount that experience leads to that concept of complex PTSD, CPTSD. And in a time when mental health was not only completely misunderstood, but completely untreated, I can only imagine that for all survivors, including Bruce, you know, whether or not you believe he was a coward or at fault or not, you know, you have to find empathy in the fact that no matter how long they lived or where they went, there was no escaping being continually sort of always on the precipice of being reminded of, the, of that. I, I, I think that's true. In my book, I do um, draw the conclusion that Bruce suffered from PTSD. PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, I think probably most, you could say that probably most passengers uh, on board the Titanic, I mean, he saw he saw the, the ship that he'd helped create slip under the sea. He probably felt responsible, in at least in some part, for, mm-hmm. for the usual loss of life. Um, although he was fortunate that his wife wasn't on board or children weren't on board, his butler and secretary were, were on board and they didn't make it out and he was very close to those. So he did lose, lose people that were dear to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he was probably in a very similar state as the majority of the passengers. Hey, some are tougher than others, but... You know, you, you'll always have that. The difference with Bruce is he he was taken to the doctor's cabin and given opiates. Mm. Now, okay, probably needed them, but I think that's something that could be said about the rest of the passengers. And unfortunately, yeah. they didn't get the same the same service. No. And the other thing too is that I was talking. I don't remember who to, but I it was I call it like the lifeboat quandary, which is where when you interviewed men of that time, like. 98% of them would not admit to getting on a life, but they never said I got on life, but it was, I jumped into the water and I swam. I was on some driftwood and I swam. A narwhal lifted me to the lifeboat and I swam. There was all these reasons why they didn't board a lifeboat. And for many of them, they didn't have eyes on them counting their presence or noting, Hey, that's so-and-so there was a lot of chaos, but someone like Ismay would probably have been really unmistakable if they just swung into your lifeboat and be like, aren't Aren't you that guy? That mm. really important guy in my life life phone. You're here. Oh, okay. It would it would be notable. And that didn't help, I think. Yeah. Um well of course the word the worst story is that he jumped into one of the first lifeboats. The worst story is that he dressed up in women's clothes so he mm-hmm. could disguise himself as a woman and get onto the lifeboat. I think those are likely discounted now. Uh, certainly wasn't true. Um, but yeah, he, he eventually, after helping a lot of others, he did get into that lifeboat. And to a point, that was his downfall, I think. However, on the other hand, uh, what a lot of people don't realise is he was required to to row that lifeboat to safety. So he was also there as an oarsman. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and many other crew members, although Bruce wasn't a crew member himself, but many of the crew members were told to get into the lifeboat so that it could help row the boat to safety. Because in those days, of course, with one or two exceptions, um, women weren't supposed to row. You know, we've come a long, a long way since then, thank God. But women weren't supposed to row in them days. It was a gentleman's job to row the boat. Um, so, so a lot of the crew had to go in. Plus, of course, the navigational skills. Rowing the boat isn't all that easy. Um, but Eddie going is an oarsman, um, and he saved himself. However, it was president of the line. And a lot of people think, well... You know, he, he is largely responsible for the Titanic sinking. I don't think he was, but people will say that. And some sometimes once something once people have something set in their minds, that's what they go with. Yeah, and I, I think be, being the president of the line, I'm sure people viewed him properly or not, viewed him as a sort of like secondary or civilian captain in that way, and that he had a, a a large measure of authority aboard the vessel in a way that other people would not. Mm. In a way, I guess, I mean, to be honest, he had no actual authority aboard the ship. Um, At the end of the day, Captain Smith was responsible. He gave the orders and the orders would go down the lines of the officers. And in Captain Smith's uh, absence, then officers could make decisions. Bruce couldn't really make a decision, but... I guess if he said something, probably certain members of the of the crew would stand up and say, hey, this is Bruce, he's me, he's the president. He's your boss. You know, we have to listen to what he says. Um, I would say that. I, I yeah. probably would if, I mean, if I worked on that ship and he came in and was like, do this thing. If I were even a dining room, like, serious, and he was like, do this thing related to linens, would be like, uh, yep, do, doing it now. And then when someone came to question me, it would be like, this is who told me to do that. And suddenly, not not to drop the hook, but it would be like, I can't argue with the president of the company that I work for. That's just how I would view it personally. I might be wrong, but that's how I would respond. My instant response would be like, yep, absolutely. I'm going to go do that thing now. Exactly. Of course, a lot of the crew members wouldn't realize who Bruce was, but certainly the ship's officers would have been well aware of who he was. Um, Well, I think that the difference was... Bruce Bruce fell into his own niche when it came to helping with the lifeboats. Um, he couldn't issue any orders, but he was certainly there to to help with the preparing of the lifeboats, um, getting passengers on board the lifeboats, and to a certain point, loading the lifeboats as well, although he wasn't actually trained in it, and there was a few of the crewmen said he was getting in the way when he was trying to help lower them. Uh, but I suppose it's it's a good reaction if if you're in a situation like that. You, you want to do whatever you can to help, don't you? Uh, yeah, I've definitely gotten in the way trying to help people before. and it Because you, you, you see a situation and your first instinct is, oh, God, I can fix this. I, I can't fix it. I can contribute. And uh, the, the, the instinct is, is there. But... I had an, a weird question, not, not not super weird, but, you know, most people, when they think about Ismay, his sort of, like, his life story begins on the Titanic and goes forward, but, like, how old was he at the time of, of I, I'm learning that everyone is so much younger than I thought they were at the time that this happened. How old was Ismay at the time of the sinking? 
I can't say exactly off the top of my head, but it was around about 41 years old. Younger than I thought in my brain. In my brain, he was in his mid-50s. But, you know, 40, 41 is at least compared to today. It's, it's a relatively young man. Yeah. I mean, it was president of the... It became president of the IMM. And, you know, guessing I've not really worked this out. But I guess when he was about maybe 33 or 34 years old. So, you know, he... he Became president of a huge company at a very early age. Um, he I became just looked it up and it said that he was born in 62. Sorry, so that would have made him exactly 50 at the time of the sailing. But still, I mean... I still, okay, 50, yeah. Okay. I still, I know a lot, not a lot. I mean, I worked at a university, so I was around a lot of, you know, professors and academics, people in their 50s. And those are, I wouldn't consider them, quote unquote, old. I'd still consider those pretty, pretty young people. So 50 is not, you know... 50 is not old in my opinion. It's like a relative, like a comparatively young person to be. Well, not like any, not to say any age leaves you prepared to deal with the magnitude of that situation, but you know. I suppose when you get to a certain age, you begin to think about what you've learned through life, your life experience. And certainly 50, I mean, I'm 67 now. I would say I have a bit of life experience. I would have said that when I was 50, but I know on how, I didn't know as much about life as uh, at 50 as, as I know now. So, yeah, it's all part of the learning curve. And he knew a lot about business. Um, it was it was great. Um, had a great education. He uh, could fix problems, business problems, just like that. But when it came to life decisions, I, I don't think it was any, any better or worse than anyone else. <laughs> That's fair. What what kind of decisions do you think that he made that w- would be super relatable to most people? But you know, mm. well, I admit I don't know much about his early. I haven't had a chance to quite finish your book, but I don't quite know very much about his you know pre Titanic life very much. So I don't I don't really know what kind of person he was. It was from family accounts. Bruce was a very shy person. Very shy. Um, you had the wrong kind of mustache for a shy person. Yeah, exactly. That's the reason. Because <laughs> he was so shy, he hated he hated his own shyness, if you like. Um, and it began even from an early age. It began to put up a defensive facade, and he, he appeared he appeared to many people to be quite abrupt. And this was the the facade he was putting on to cover his shyness. Because he knew if he if he came across as a shy person uh, when he was older um, in a business situation, it wasn't going to work for him. So he put up this facade. I think he possibly went a bit too far with it. Um, but a lot of people disliked him because of his abruptness. Mm-hmm. The only people who really liked him were those that knew him well and could see through this facade and could see the, the real Bruce's mayor. They could understand Bruce's mayor. And I think that was the the main problem with him. He was a very quick thinker, unlike his father. I uh, would even as a, at an early age again, he would look at a problem and he would generally find a solution within seconds or minutes. Uh where his father would take maybe a couple of days, Bruce would have the solution straight away. And generally he'd be, he'd be right as well. Um, it was it was great sportsman, loved tennis, loved cricket, loved football. Um, so he was a great outdoor guy. Uh, 
He was a family man, had a lot of setbacks during his life with um, losing siblings at a very early age. And even one of his own sons, he lost at a very early age too. Um, so, you know, it's just, just like most of us had a lot of setbacks in his life. But once he once he took the helm of the White Star Line due to his father's death, um, he had to quickly come around and get himself into the business world. And I think that brings us up to the, the Bruce that we know from Titanic. Yeah, I, I think I did the math in my head properly, and it seems to me that he was 37 when he took the chairmanship over after the death of his father. Mm-hmm. That could, that could be. I would have to look that one up, to be honest. Um, so, I cheated and I did. <laughs> yeah. Thomas died in 1899. Mm-hmm. Bruce was born in 1862. So 60, 70, 80, 90. Yeah, about 30. What's the math? <laughs> I got 37 on that. You got 37, right. Okay. That's, that's just me and my brain. Right. Yeah, but yeah. the reason I was I was bringing it up is like, I'm not super obsessed with age. I'm just trying to construct a timeline of, mm. you know, how, how we got to where we got to. So, you know, about well, 13 he, years he was in charge of the White Star Line before <laughs> um, Titanic even ever set sail. But the White Star Line had its own prop, like ship. Um, problems before they had the disaster of that was it the atlantic yeah so that 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 was before bruce's time right but it it Um, was it was a big deal for the line it was um it went down very badly uh pardon the pun um (laughs) it it, is almost almost ended the line but they, yeah. they did manage to to pull through. Of course, that was in the days that his father was in in control, mm-hmm. Thomas Henry, is mayor. Um, but yes, there were a lot of disasters. But then again, most of the shipping lines had a similar number of disaster, uh, disasters. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> so after uh, Titanic and the White Star, the White Star Line got a lot of you know even today got a lot of modern attention. So you look at it and say, wow, that was a lot of shipwrecks. But if you were to actually give it the same give like Cunard the same pop culture treatment. I think we'd notice, unfortunately, similar numbers just, just just by nature of being ships in the ocean at the time. If your ship's old, it will sink, generally. Yeah. You, know, you can do, do so much, but eventually if the hull's consumed by too much water, that, that ship's going to go down, whether it's a yeah. wooden-built vessel or an iron-built vessel. Um I mean, I think the White Star Line, certainly in Bruce's days, that they tried to do better with the Titanic. Well, the, the idea of watertight compartments came along long before Titanic. But with the Titanic, the thought by having so many watertight compartments um, and automatic doors and all the other safety features they had on board, the thought they created a ship that was virtually unsinkable. Because they never claimed it wasn't sinkable. That was something that the press turned around. But the thought the thought the thought they had it made. The thought you know, the thought they were there in, in standards and safety at sea, but it you know, Titanic disaster again just uh, showed the how complacent we can be sometimes. It's not only that, but sometimes nature is just grander than you. I mean, we're seeing that 
now or unfortunately you see these massive floods that come in and there's just nothing you can do about it the rain won't stop coming what do you, you, you can't divert the clouds it's just it's simply what's happening exactly um nature played its part on the titanic disaster that night mm-hmm. um it was an exceptionally mild winter which meant there was a lot more ice in going coming down the labrador uh, couldn't than there normally would be um there was no moon that night. Had there Great. been moon that night, the the light of the moon would probably have reflected from the iceberg. We might Hopefully. never know that. But or at probably, least rippled in the water. Uh, ripples in the water. Had it not been so calm, there would have been ripples in the water, which you would have seen the white horses breaking over the over the tip of the iceberg. So I think nature did play a huge part in the Titanic disaster as well. It's a great point. I grew up in a place without a lot of light pollution. So sometimes when, you know, the power would go out on the block or the power would go out in the neighborhood at night, it would be that pitch black because, you know, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't any ambient light around at that point. There weren't street lamps on our block because we were very far outside um, in the sort of outer parts of the suburb. And I just remember thinking, you know, how, how profoundly dark it is. I think there's an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants where he describes that kind of darkness as advanced darkness. And it's it's it is a different kind of feeling when it is dark and there is no light. There's no moon. Um, you know, most of the time there was a moon when our power went out, but I think you know, once it or so it went out when there was a new moon, so it was completely dark and it's 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 very frightening and even if you're not afraid of the dark, you can it's it's a brand new experience. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you're moving across the North Atlantic or wherever you are, and it's like staring into the abyss. All you can see is darkness wherever you turn. I mean, these days, yes, as you say, the street lighting, even if even if there's only street lighting around, it's dim, but you can see. Mm-hmm. But when it's in complete darkness um, and there's nothing, nothing around you but black, as it would have been that night, all you would see is maybe the lights from the, the ship itself reflecting on, on the waters you were. But beyond that, you wouldn't say anything. And, yeah, it's, it's got to be, gotta be a, an unnerving experience, I guess. I don't think I'd want to experience it. That's just, you know, speaking for myself. But <laughs> when I've asked this question to other people before, and the answer in my, like, I'm sure the answer is probably unquantifiable, but when did you know you wanted to write this book or when did the idea start or how long did it take you to actually write it? Was this something that has been building up over your lifetime? Not really. Um, If I go back to when I was a child um, and I first grew my interest with Titanic, I was in the sitting room uh, watching the TV in those days, it would have been a black and white TV uh, with my father and the 1990, uh, 1950, was it 54, 57? A night to remember film was 57 on. 57 or 58. Yeah, yeah. That, that was on the TV. And I remember sitting there watching the TV. You saw this huge ship in the darkness going across the Atlantic. I said to me, to my father, wow, look at that big ship, Dad. I was on the eight at the time. Uh, and he said to me, well, you know, son, you're related to the man that owned that ship. 
what? Well, of course, Bruce never actually owned the Titanic, but for the mind of an eight-year-old, it was good enough. And that right. kind of, yeah, it piqued my interest. Um, but I think it was only only years later, when I was coming into retirement, um, that I could find the the time to write the book that I'd always wanted to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think from from start to finish, it probably took me about five years to get it to the publication stage. Um, as I said, I did I did think at one point, although I liked the inf- information that I had, I didn't think I had enough to write a book. And this was my first one, so everything was a learning curve. Uh, it was only really when I met um, one of Bruce's great-grandsons. Now, I've got this abundance of uh, previously unseen information. I'll let you know what, I'm going to go for this. And I think from that point, that was probably about three years. That's incredible. It's especially, I imagine, it must it must have been really inspiring to have those firsthand sources and to be able to see those documents yourself. It was, um, you know, I found so much out about Bruce that I, I didn't know. Um, so one of the things were, like most of the people, I always believed that Bruce had retired from the International Mercantile Marine because of the White Star Line disaster. Good assumption. Yeah. Then then I came across these letters um, going back to, I think it was November 1912, where Bruce was actually making plans for his retirement at that point. And he should have actually retired from the White Star Line before Titanic sailed. The problem was his predecessor, Harold Sanderson, wasn't quite ready to take over as president. So they decided to delay Bruce's retirement for about a year and a half after that. So that that was a great, great surprise to me. Um, I also learned that Bruce actually, when he was retiring from the presidency of the IMM, He'd actually asked the, the remaining directors, could I stay on board as manager of the White Star Line? Because, of course, that was his father's company, and he really didn't want to lose that. Um, and again, his his director said, well, we don't think it would be a good thing for you to stay on as, as manager of the White Star Line. So he, he lost that too. Uh, and... I think that probably sent him further down that deep hole that we were talking about earlier. Um, But it did prove to me that his retirement was nothing to do with the sinking at all. Yeah, sometimes things just happen to line up in in Mm. a way. When Mm. you were researching, did you find anything out about like sort of him as a person that was really interesting to learn? Like, I don't know, even something, some basic stuff, like a a favorite sandwich or book? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't tell you what his favorite sandwich is. Oh. If it's anything like me, it'd be cheese and onion. Um, there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, no, not really. I mean, he loved horses. Um, oh. he, he did. He, he loved uh, taking the horses on the beach. In fact, there was a rather sad story about Bruce when he was younger. Um, he wasn't... He wasn't no, I'll correct myself. I think he just began his apprenticeship with the White Star Line. Mm-hmm. He was still living with his parents, and he came home from work early, much earlier than his father came home. And 
he decided to take his father's favourite racehorse for a, a bolt across the, the sands of the River Dee. Um, it was quite excitable, uh, chap, and I think he overraced the horse. The horse stumbled, broke a leg, and, well, the rest is history, as to say. You said um, racehorse and beach, and I yeah. had a feeling without, oh, how, how awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, obviously, when his father came home, he was... I was furious with Bruce, not because, not just because his favourite race also had to be uh, destroyed, but also because Bruce was so, in Thomas's eyes, so silly to take that racehorse out and race it so quickly across the sands. Um, I mean, I don't know much about horses. Maybe, maybe it was a reasonable thing to do, but the thing was, he, he did it without permission. It's. Uh, it is and it isn't a reasonable thing to do. I don't know a ton about horses. I'm like a beginner slash novice rider, but especially if you're not familiar with that, like it was his dad's horse and he wasn't supposed to have it. And if you immediately are like zero go. And if have you ever tried running on sand? Just you personally. Yeah. Uh, one false uh, little twist and, and you're done for. And horses are just, unfortunately, such fragile creatures. A major injury. It's not that you can't heal a broken leg, but it's really hard to tell a horse or a dog or a cat or a bird. You have to keep that completely immobilized and still, and you can't put it down and you can't do any of those things that you want to do because they are animals and they will do things. So unfortunately, yeah, those are fatal injuries to, to those creatures. And it's not anyone's fault per se, but it's like, they're, they're very fragile. So when something like that happens, it's unfortunately can be pretty catastrophic. Exactly. You know, and, I suppose how raise a question: How fast can you race a horse across the sand? Well, I think most people, with any sense of you, rightly say probably wouldn't. Uh, maybe a gentle canter, but I, I presume he was. Um, With a racehorse and bolting, and I'm assuming they were galloping. I, I'm assuming fast. so. Um, I mean, not not to sound like a weirdo, but if you're going to steal a if you're going to steal a racehorse, you're going to go fast. Well, exactly, and you know that's just. That's just made a connection with me now. Thank you for that, Alexi, because Bruce always hated speed. Whether it was in a car, if it was in a motor car, he hated hated driving fast. Um, And, you know, maybe that's where his fear of speed came from. The fact that he caused his horse to be destroyed because he was going too fast. That's a big lesson, too, because, I mean, I know I've heard stories and I'm maybe you even you have friends and I, I have classmates who have taken the car for a joyride come on we're not gonna go that far just go around the block oh speed up a little bit you know we've all heard a story of someone who took the car for a ride when they weren't supposed to take the car for a ride and the car got destroyed and you know sometimes there's injuries or death involved with those stories and sometimes it's just the car and in those cases, when it's just the car, I'm sure it's it's still a difficult lesson to learn because, you know, you cost X, thousands of dollars of damage. But if you injure or unfortunately kill somebody, I'm sure that there isn't not I'm just like I can only imagine that there is an extra layer of grief and responsibility associated with that, because what was supposed to be fun turned into something horrifying. And that wasn't ever your intention, but it happened. 
Yeah, and I suppose again that's part of growing up. A part part of growing up that you don't want to see is yeah. the consequences of your own actions. And I suppose something like that, if you do something to cause the loss of the life of a human or or an oh, animal, yeah, no. it's there with you for life, and it it would affect on the the way you think throughout the rest of your life. For most people, certainly it would be with me, and I guess you too. Yeah, I, I've I've never had anything like that happen, so I don't even want to compare that story, the story I'm going to tell to that. But I used to go to skate parks and I roller skate. So unlike a skateboard, these things are strapped to my feet. And if things are going, go wrong, I can't just hop off and, and run it off. I'm, I'm kind of there for the ride. And I fell into an obstacle at one point in time and tried to grab the lip on the way in and dislocated my shoulder. Yeah, it was a horrible injury. It was the worst pain I've ever been in. And I've had 11 surgeries. So it's like, mm, this, this was the one. And ever since then, I used to be a pretty bold, I still am a reasonably bold person, but I don't go to skate parks anymore. I, I just can't. Even standing at a small obstacle, it's scary because I remember that feeling of losing control and then the pain that came after. And even though it's, as I said, not even comparable, it's that feeling of what if it happens again? But what if it does? Yeah, um, I can compare that to uh, an event that happened to me when I was about six years old. I was doing my apprenticeship as a, a electrical engineer on construction sites, and sounds dangerous. Running... <laughs> Sorry, sounds dangerous. <laughs> no, well, this was. Um, so I was on the top of a very, very steep ladder. The ladder wasn't quite high enough to get to where we needed to be. So we had, yep, to, dangerous. We had to put it, kind of make it closer to the wall to get that extra height. Um, I was drilling I was drilling into the side of this wall for to mount some, some communal lighting. And in those days, we didn't have great drills like we do now. But... It was tough trying to get through this through this break, and I was pushing and pushing with the drill, and I thought, oh, finally, it's, start, it's starting to bite. It's finally starting to, to drill into the wall. What I hadn't realized, of course, was it wasn't really the drill that was going into the wall. I was pushing the ladder away from the wall myself, and I thought, oh, wow, just one big push, and that'll be it. To, it'll, it'll be there. Well, one big push, and that was it. <laughs> I was flying backwards through the air with a drill and a ladder following me. <laughs> That's so scary. Fortunately, oh, how, high, how high up were you? Oh, probably not not very far. Probably about maybe 10, 20, 30, oh, 35 feet in the air. Yeah, that's high enough. <laughs> well, ever since then, the point was ever since then, I've never been the same on ladders. Uh, no, I completely I understand. Yeah. I don't mind heights. I can go up on great heights, but if it's on ladders, then that, that, the, the memory of that will always stick with me. It's really interesting what does and doesn't stay with you because I had a wild incident with a riding lawnmower when I was around 10 and that ne your facial expression definitely Ouch. sums that up. Yeah, I was mowing the lawn and, you know, again, we grew up out in the suburbs. So a riding, not just the suburbs, but like past that. So you needed a riding lawnmower. You could, the hand mower was just not going to do it for the, the yard, um, and we had a swing set back there. And so what I would do is we would tuck the swings and like the hanging obstacles out of the way, obviously, so you could mow under them. And, you know, perfect timing as I'm coming with the um, the mower, 
the swing is blown loose by a gust of wind, catches the front corner of the mower and just lovelyly pulls it up um, and falls onto its side. I deposits me off of it, thankfully away from the blades um, and not on top of me. It went sideways, but still that could have been absolutely insane. And the wilder part about it is this is many years ago, back when iPods were made basically out of metal. I found my iPod about 40 feet away. It had hit the blades and just gone bing. And it had a tiny, tiny little, little dent in the corner. But outside of that, it was still playing. And it lasted me another, what, three years? Hmm. So, but I, I think it may have happened young enough or it may have happened in a way that surprised me enough and nothing bad happened that it didn't scare me away from it. Like it was a scary moment, but I was like, oh, Oh, well, I'm good. I'm good. Just got to push this mower back up and yeah, it'll finish the lawn. No problem. But you know, if I, you know, maybe broken my wrist or something, I think probably would have been a very different story, but absolutely not even a scratch. It was very lucky. And because of that, I didn't then fear riding lawnmowers, but they could have, could have gone a very different way. Yeah. I think you've been very, very lucky that way. Um, Little. You know, when you look at something like that and you think, I'll say when you're driving down the road in your car, you can be in a very near accident and think, oh, my God, how close was that? And, you know, it, it tends to make you, you wary for next time. I don't think I've told the story in the podcast yet. Many, a few years ago, I was driving home from a job um, and I had, I had been let go from a job that I'd only worked at for like two days. So it wasn't even... It wasn't even like a huge deal. It wasn't like, oh, I've been working here for so long and my achievements are gone. But I was still sulking a bit because I was in like my early 20s or so and grouchy because of course you are. And I'm, I'm driving home and it's around the middle of the day. So it's not a lot of traffic. And all of a sudden the pickup truck in front of me who'd been driving completely normally down the highway for the past, you know, s- several miles or so suddenly just loses control of his car swerves a little in the left lane and then makes a hard juke to the right up onto this like concrete divider before tumbling back down and myself and several other cars pull over to to check on him and you know we eventually we get him out of the truck he's unconscious you know we we can't find any id immediately on him and nobody wants to go like rifling through his belongings this is a human being we call 911 and the ambulance comes to pick him up and in the meantime i'd found his phone and sent a text to just a phone to the first three contacts saying this man was in an accident if you know him um this is the hospital he went to and somebody got in touch with me later and unfortunately um it turns out that he had gone into cardiac arrest while driving due to a medication he was taking for a spider bite and right who would have ever anticipated he he was he'd never been at risk for heart conditions before it was a reaction from medication and you know as he was going and having a heart attack he was you know trying to get off of the road and he unfortunately passed away later on in the hospital but he didn't hit injure or inconvenience a single other driver getting out of the way. Everyone who pulled over pulled over voluntarily and everyone else was fine. There wasn't even any debris in the road. And, you know, it was a one man accident, but it was one of those things where it's like, you, you've seen these videos of accidents that go, you know, driver has a seizure while driving and causes eight car pileup. You know, you hear these things about going so horribly wrong. And, you know, this 
this man in unfortunately what turned out to be his last conscious moments was like i'm not gonna hurt other people and just got out of the way and it's completely unforeseeable because it's you know i, I ended up talking to someone new in this and he was like yeah it's not like he had heart problems it's you know, this was caused by something completely separate and you just never you can never predict what's going to happen and i think this goes you know unfortunately back to bruce's story where I don't think that, you know, anyone thinks that he got on the Titanic thinking like, and in four days, the ship shall sink. You know, it, it, I don't think anyone thinks that's how it went. There was just an unfortunate current of events that happened. And, you know, unlike the pickup truck, a lot of people were impacted, not just, you know, the survivors who lived with the trauma, but, you know, the hundreds of people who lost their lives. And as we said, it's it's easy to want someone to blame. And it's just, it's very unfortunate when you become the fall person for the biggest disaster, civilian disaster of your time. Mm. I, I think that was the case with Titanic. I mean, there was so many things went wrong that night. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike any accident, whether it's, it's in a car, a ship or a plane, you can take any one, any one of those uh, mishaps out of the equation and, you know, maybe going to be okay. But I mean... When you look at the story of Titanic, the ship was delayed because of a coal strike, slightly. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and other people were rebooked onto Titanic yeah, because of the coal ship. strike, and some people just chose not to travel because of the coal strike. There was a lot of, as there is kind of right now with the Southwest weirdness, there's a lot of travel chaos happening at the time, where it was just, you know, a lot of decisions were being made really quickly. Well, I think there was, I mean, one of the one of the White Star Liners, I think it was the Oceanic, and uh, another ship of the IMM, the New York, were mm-hmm. delayed in, in um, must have been in Southampton, because they needed to take coal from both of those ships uh, into Titanic for the maiden voyage. And yes, a lot of those passengers that were to sail on there, they also ended up going on the Titanic when when they wouldn't have done. It makes know? sense. You know, again, you could say if it wasn't for the coal strike, they they would, you know, they would have survived for another few years. Mm. So yeah, there's a lot you can you can a lot you can read in or out of it. But I mean, if an accident is going to happen, it's it's going to happen. Uh, so there was also the binoculars. The I think it was Officer Blair had left the ship in a hurry and accidentally taken the key to the binocular cabinet. And people say, well, if that hadn't have happened, then they would have seen the iceberg sooner. It's interesting to note, though, with a modern-day um, scientific experiment, it suggested that with given the extreme circumstances that night, even if they'd had binoculars, it probably wouldn't have made any difference. You know, I've, who knows? I agree with that, and that's I've I've brought this up on the, before because if it's dark, binoculars don't have night vision attached to them. They only enhance what's visible, and if you don't have a light source, you can just see the darkness closer. Mm. I mean, an iceberg that night would have been a blackberg, I guess. Yeah, you know, and. All, all you would have, all you would have seen was maybe uh, a misshapen sh- shadow or some kind of shape that would probably wouldn't be recognisable as anything. So yeah, who, who knows? It's, it's a difficult one to work out. I think. 
I mean, I wasn't there, and there's no way I'll ever know. So, and that's know, the point. As people, I mean, you had to have been there. I mean, it's true. It's the same way. It's like, have you ever tried to explain an inside joke to somebody? And it just, it's like, you just, it doesn't, it, you can't because half of it was the experience of being there. And, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to compare a joke to trauma, but it's sort of like, you never know what you would do in that situation until you're in that situation. You don't know what you would do in a sinking ship until you are on a sinking ship. Mm. You, you don't, I used to... When I was younger, I used to give a lot of talks to schools and historical groups. And at, at the end of the talks about Titanic, um, I'd have questions and answers. I'll get some interesting questions. I think the, the most interesting one was with the younger school children. Uh, they would often put their little hands up and say, Mrs. May, yes, we are on board the Titanic. Um, no. Um, but for the sake of the... Uh, historical groups, a lot of the elder citizens would ask questions, but a lot of them would approach me later, privately, and they would say to me, do you think Bruce was, was correct on getting on off that ship? Do you think he did the right thing? And I will look them in the eye and I'll say, what would you have done? Uh-huh. In those circumstances... What would you have done? And most people will just kind of put their head down, walk away and say, probably the same. Yep. I'd get on the ship. I'd yeah. boat. Yeah. I, 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 and let, listen, the only reason I wouldn't is if someone had a better reason to have it than me. Yeah. Exactly. And that would be it. It's if someone was like, at the last minute was like, please let me on. I am the caretaker for my mother back home. It'd be like, okay. Mm. But if there's no one there and the seat's open and, you know, Murdoch's looking at me going, do you want to get on this boat? To be like, yes, yes, I do. I would like to get on this boat now. Thank you. Exactly. And that was the thing with Bruce. Um, it didn't take anyone else to see. There were no women or children there. Um, any of the male passengers that were there had already gotten onto the lifeboat. The only people that we were, were aware that was on the deck in that vicinity, on the, on the starboard side, were the crew members after Bruce had gotten in. Mm-hmm. So that's that's all there were. So it's a case of what do you do? Do you no one else is going to take that seat. If Bruce hadn't gotten into that lifeboat, no one else would have taken that seat. So yeah. what do you do? Do you, do you stand there and watch the 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 rowing boat go go away with empty seats, like some did, yeah. Uh some people did do that and my hat off to them. But you do that and think about never seeing your wife and children again who are waiting for you on the harbour side. What do you do? I think I think one one person that was interviewed, Sir Robert Finlay, was interviewed by the Daily Mail in nineteen twelve about Bruce's escape. And off the top of my head, his words were something like Bruce's problem was that if he hadn't gotten into, gotten into that lifeboat, people would be saying that he was a coward because he dare not face the consequences of the inquiries that would ensue. I don't know. Is it a catch twenty two? Yeah, that's a hard one to say because so many the yeah because so many people who died they were like basically appointed as saints 
in, mm. in a way. And so, you know, there's, it's a possibility that he would have just been regarded among the departed in that way as like, Oh, a noble gentleman who gave his life. But there's, again, there's no way of knowing cause that's not what happened. Yeah, exactly. And then you, you get, you get, you hear your stories of, Oh, I can't remember. Was it, was it Mr. And Mrs. Strauss? I think it was. The, the Macy's old, department owner. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, she managed to get a seat on a lifeboat and she encouraged her husband to follow. And I think it was going to. And one of the crew said, I'm sorry, sir, it's, it's ladies only, women and children. And he said, well, actually, no, that's quite right. And he turned away and walked back onto the boat deck to, to wave everyone off. And she stood up and she simply said, where my husband goes, I'll go. You know, and those are the true stories of of real love and heroism. I think that come off Titanic. And at the end of the day, what you know, I cover with a lot of people is that Titanic story and its its continuing legacy is built on the humanity of the story. It's it's built on the fact that there are shades of gray and that not everyone was just this black and white cartoon of either a hero or of a villain or of a you know, complete and utter saint and a martyr is that there are people who had actions where, you know, maybe they're questionable or maybe we don't know what happened. It's, it is a story of humanity and, and loss at the end of the day, but, uh, but primarily it is a story of humans, of people. It is. Um, I mean, when you think about the, the difference in, in social classes, the differences of peop- the reasons why people were onto Titanic. The, the, there's such a lot of variation, such a lot of different types of people on there. And, you know, I, I can't, I don't think you could say that a particular class would act in any particular way. There were heroes in, in all kinds of groups. Um, yeah, you can't generalize entire classes or groups or ethnicities of people. It's unfair to do that. Exactly. I, I always like the story of um, a friend of mine who's related to one of the Adagio 14. She's related to Pat Canavan. Wow. Where he was obviously one of the third-class passengers. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he didn't make it off the ship. But again, he led, he led lots of others from the third class to safety, and he saw them getting on, on some of them getting onto the lifeboat. But again, he would only be... I think it'd be about 17, maybe so 18 young. years old. Yeah. And yet he stayed on the ship. Mm-hmm. As long as he saw the women and children getting onto the lifeboat, he, he stayed there. And he, he was content with that, lost his life. But, you know, there are so many different, there so many different walks of life. Uh, there was the other girl 14. I remember hearing the story about... Um, a Bulgarian group. I did um, an interview for Bulgarian radio. So I was researching any Bulgarians on, on board Titanic. And they, they had a similar story. There was a group of, I think it was about 24 third-class passengers, mm-hmm. as they would be, travelled from Bulgaria wanting to go to America. And when you think about it from Bulgaria, they would have had to have travelled through about eight or nine different countries before they actually got to Southampton. And they were similar to the Adigul 14. Uh, most of them were related, and most of them were going to the same place in America. I think it was Chicago. So I would only guess that um, 
they they had family over there already or they had jobs lined up over there already um and you know they were going to start a new life full of yeah. dreams and aspirations what weren't they going to do when they got to america fame and fortune and just just generally a better life and sadly none of them made it i think that's unfortunately the most important thing to remember with this the story of the titanic is that for everyone that survived there's more than one person who's dreams and ambitions and hopes and accomplishments and sorrows and trials and victories died on that ship. And for many of them, it was entire families that we'll, we'll never know about. Mm, exactly. But, you know, after all that, I think one of the wonderful legacies of Titanic is Certainly for the third and many of the second-class passengers, Titanic was about bringing people together, hands across the sea. And I think even now, years after the Titanic disaster, she's still bringing people together. Relations of those that was on board Titanic, complete strangers, you and I talking on this podcast, and all the wonderful listeners listening in because they're interested in the story. Um... You know, and I, I think that's one of the better sides of Titanic. She brought people together. Well, she, she was meant to bring people together. Didn't succeed in 1912, but she's certainly doing it now. I don't have any better anything else to... That was perfect. Um, it was an absolutely astoundingly true statement. Um, and I also just want to thank you so much for giving me your time and talking about you know, not just Bruce, but about your yourself and contributing to keeping that that connection going. It was my pleasure and thanks for the opportunity to, to put that story over and I hope that you and your listeners really enjoyed it. Well, Thank I definitely you. did. <laughs> good, good. I'd really like to thank Cliff for coming on and, and spending this time with me and talking about his book and his relative. And if you want to get in touch with him or find out more about him or read the book, Understanding Japers Ismay, the true story of the man they called the coward of Titanic, you can go to his website as a good place to start. It is ismay1, I-S-M-A-Y-1 dot Wix site, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash understanding J-B ismay you can also get in touch with him on social media you can find him on facebook that is facebook.com slash ismay.author i-s-m-a-y dot a-u-t-h-o-r he's on twitter at twitter.com slash cliff ismay all one word c-l-i-f-f-i-s-m-a-y Lado and Princess really want to contribute, but I'm just going to finish up and say that you can also find them on Instagram at instagram.com slash ismay underscore titanic. And I hope that you guys will find a copy of his book. If you want to get a hold of a signed copy of his book, you can email him at author.ismay at gmail.com. Thank you so much. The dogs say hi, and I'll see you in the next time. Bye. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word, Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. 
If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!